to again direct your hearts and your, your attention into the Word of God. And for a number of weeks now, we have been asking the question of why. Why we do things. Uh, so many people have come up to me in these about eight or nine weeks that we've been doing this and saying, thank you so much. Some have said, because you're reminding us from the Word of God why we do certain things. And then others have come up to me and said, thank you so much for, for doing this because I, I, I never knew why. I didn't know that was in the Word. I've always wondered why. We have asked questions and, more importantly, answered questions from the Word of God why we believe. Why do we believe in Jesus? Why is Jesus above all else? If you've been serving Him for a long time, the answer is very, very obvious, but for some people, they don't know. We, we've asked the question, why do we pray? Well, if you believe in Jesus, and you know that He is the Son of God, and you know that He is powerful, you're more inclined to pray, but we looked at why do we pray? Why do we belong? Why, why are we a part of a gathering of believers? Some of you have been a part of this church for many decades. Some of you just a few weeks or a few months. Why do we belong together? Why is that important? Why don't we just tune in, watch, turn it off, and then go about our week? Why don't we just, why don't we, why don't we just go and worship God alone in the solitude of a mountain someplace? Why is it important that we gather together? Why do we belong to a body of believers? We asked that question and we answered it from the Word of God. Why do we serve? Why is that important? That we don't just come, show up, sit down, receive, leave, and, and then it's all over with. But why do we serve? And we asked and answered that question. In fact, I'm going to briefly allude to that again today. The text that we used in that, we're going to use again today. Why do we give? Just a few moments ago, we received an offering. And not only what we give in an offering, but why do we give? Why, is, why are the resources that I hold, that I possess, for a very short time... Why is it important that I give? Why do we do that? We asked the question and answered the question from the Word of God. Why do we praise? For the last 25 minutes or so, 30 minutes, we've spent quite a bit of time praising the Lord. A few moments ago, you lifted up your voice and your hands and you said, Hosanna in the highest. In just those few words, you praised the Lord. Why is that important? What happens when we praise why is, why is that something of value to a follower of Jesus Christ? We asked the question two weeks ago, why do we hope in hopeless times? Why is it that followers of Jesus Christ can have hope when it seems like all hope is lost? What, what, what makes the difference? By the way, with any of these messages, if you want... If, if you're still wondering why, maybe you weren't here, we can get that, it, that, those, those messages to you. And, and that's not self-promotion. That's simply the, the Word of God that was proclaimed can be very, very powerful in answering some of those questions in your life. Last week, we asked the question, why, why we don't? Or why don't we do certain things as followers of Jesus Christ? If He has truly transformed us, if He is dwelling within us, if he has saved us, that's the word that we use, if he has done this remarkable work in us, then do we do things differently than we did before? And are there some things that we don't do? And again, if you were here last week, I did not give a comprehensive list of things that we don't. 
But we ask, why don't we? And so all of these questions uh, this morning as we begin this week, again, that I referred to a few moments ago, that we sometimes refer to as Passion Week or Holy Week, and in some cultures it's called that. The days, they are the days that are leading up to Good Friday or the day in which we commemorate Jesus is dying on the cross just five days from now. And then after that, Resurrection Sunday, sometimes we call it Easter, but Resurrection Sunday, why do we, why do we do those things? And we'll be answering that as well. But this morning I want to ask and answer from God's Word why we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. Why do we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ? If you've been here for a while, part of AFA for some time, you know that in the main sanctuary, as as you are facing the platform, over on the right, to your right on that wall, there was for a long time a cross. Someone asked a few weeks ago, they said, is there going to be a cross in the sanctuary? I kind of responded that way, and I said, well, yes. In fact, it's going to be, it's going to be backlit. It's good. You're going to be able to see it in the middle of the night if you walk into a, of course we're going to have that. It is a powerful symbol, but it's more than just a symbol. It's more than just something that we would put on a wall or hang around a neck or dangle from an earring or something like that. It's more than just something that people put on their bumper stickers or on their walls. It's more than just something atop a church building. Cross is powerful, but why? Why do we not simply hang it on the wall or put it around our necks, but why do we, more importantly, more importantly, why do we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ? Why is that important? Well, again, for some here, you're going, well, that's so obvious because it's all about the cross, and it is. Some may be wondering, why do we do that? In your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 20, please. The, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. It's always important to know the backstory to a text of Scripture, particularly if it's in the Gospels, because the Gospels are a narrative. They, they tell about events in a certain sequence. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. Now you understand, Jesus walked everywhere. It's what they did. Um, uh, on, on few exceptions did Jesus ever go by any other means. On a boat, one time that we know of, on a, on a donkey. But on this occasion, he's walking from north, from the Galilee region, south to where Jerusalem is. He's walking to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city. It contained the temple. There was only one temple. There could be many synagogues in in Jewish worship, but there was only one temple. By the way, that is why the the site that we often refer to as the Wailing Wall, you've heard of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, that's why it's so important to Jews even to this day, because it's the sole remaining part of that temple that was there. There can only be, in Jewish eyes, and and in this time, there could only be one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. It was the center of worship for all Jews. Now, there, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus was walking from north to south. He's walking to Jerusalem, but there were a lot of other people who were also walking to Jerusalem. The reason that so many people were going to Jerusalem by, in the time of Matthew chapter 20 is that Passover was coming. 
Passover was the high and holy day, one of the highest and holiest of days on the Jewish calendar. Passover commemorated an event that happened about 15 centuries before when the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt and God miraculously delivered them out of slavery in large part through that last of the plagues where the the death angel passed over the land and any home that was that was anointed or covered with the lamb's blood it was a very symbolic thing every house that was covered with that, the angel would pass over. But if the lamb's blood was not there, then the firstborn in that family would be struck dead. And so for 15 centuries, these people, I mean, Passover's coming. Oh man, we remember what God did in delivering his people. We're here in Jerusalem today because God delivered us back then. Passover was huge. And so Jesus and the disciples and a whole lot of other people are making their way to Jerusalem for Passover. But Jesus knew what most people did not know. Most people were thinking, we're going to go, we're going to make a sacrifice, it's going to be great, there's going to be some really good food, we're going to remember what God did. That's what most people were thinking, but, God, but Jesus who is God, Jesus was thinking something entirely different. He knew that he was going for another reason. Jesus knew that awaiting him in Jerusalem with each step, with each step that he makes, making his way south to that holy city, each step he knows that awaiting him there in Jerusalem was betrayal and suffering and death and ultimately victory. Jesus knows what no one else knows. Oh, he said it to some people, but they didn't get it yet. But Jesus knows that awaiting him in Jerusalem are all of those things. And each step that Jesus took, took him closer to all of that. He's 33 years old. He's 33 years old. And Jesus' first 30 years had been lived in virtual obscurity. Oh, a few people on a few occasions knew of where he was and that he was significant. A few people during those first 30 years believed him and declared him to be the Messiah, but most did not know. But for the previous three years of Matthew chapter 20, for the three years before this point, Jesus, he's made himself known. For three years, his life has been not in obscurity, but his life has been very, very public. In those years, Jesus trained 12 disciples. In those three years, Jesus, the Bible says, healed every kind of disease. Think of that for a moment. Every disease that was present then, every disease that could kill people or cripple people or hurt people or just make them feel miserable, Jesus could heal every one of those diseases, and he did. The Bible says in the book of John that if all of the things that Jesus said and did were recorded, then all of the books in the world could not contain them. In those three years, everywhere he went, he would go through a crowd of people. Some, we know the story, would reach out and touch him, and they would be healed. Others, he would reach out and touch them, and they would be healed. Other people, even from a distance, he would speak it, and they would be healed. Every kind of disease in those three years. In those three years, he worked miracles of every kind, miracles of protection and deliverance and miracles of 
of provision. All kinds of miracles Jesus worked. We call them signs and wonders. They were miracles. For three years he had done this. For three years, he had delivered countless people from demonic spirits. In some cases, some people had many, multiple demons within them, and Jesus delivered them all. Pretty cool, man. Powerful. For three years, Jesus had been doing this. For three years, everywhere he went, every person that he encountered. Well, let me rephrase that, because the Bible says that some people did not accept him, and in some places, there weren't many miracles that happened because they disbelieved him. But every person that believed, every person that came to him, every person that said, Jesus, I don't have all the answers, but I need a touch from you and I believe that you can do it, he would touch them, deliver them, heal them. It's amazing. Three years. Here in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus was doing something different. He'd been to Jerusalem many times before growing up. He'd been to Jerusalem many times before in the previous three years. But now he's going to Jerusalem for a different reason. He's going to suffer, and he is going to die. It's very, very different. So calling his disciples together, Jesus said this in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you, Jesus said. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mentioned a few moments ago that we we looked at the first part of that verse 28 just a few weeks ago. The part about the, the, the part about that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Because, because we know that just a few days after he made this statement, he would carry that out. At the Last Supper, you remember? Just a few weeks ago, we looked at it, how Jesus got down on his knees. He uh, washed the disciples' feet, something that servants did. He literally did not come to be served, but to serve. Actually, he'd been doing that for a long time. He wasn't just making a show of it there. He had been serving for many, many years. From the very beginning, he had come as an act of service. But today I focus in on the last part of that verse. Jesus said that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. That's an interesting word, isn't it? In fact, we sang it earlier. I don't know if you picked up on it, but we actually used that word in one of the songs, the second song that we sang this morning. Jesus said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. That word ransom means to pay a high price to purchase someone's freedom. You've maybe heard how you know, someone is kidnapped, and, and to get them back in one piece, you have to pay a, a ransom. You see, Jesus knew what most people didn't know, and that is that mankind was in absolute bondage. Now you think of this. As I mentioned a moment ago, 
Jesus, Jesus, whenever he would go someplace, he would see the sickness and the depravity of mankind. He would see the, the sin that, that, that people were bound in. He would, he would come upon someone. Jesus had the ability to see into people's hearts. So he would see someone and he would go, oh, I, I know the pain that that person has gone through. He could sense it. He, he knew the abuse that they had suffered. He knew the sins that they had done and the consequences of that sin. And, and, and here's what I think. It doesn't say it in so many words, but here's what I think. For, for many years, ever since he knew as, as a child, he, he knew that, that God had sent him. I think that every time he looked at someone, he would go, I have the answer. I am the answer. I believe he would look at people and he would say, I, I know how to fix this. I can't, he, he knew that there were limitations because he was in a physical body. He was in a human body. He couldn't travel anywhere he, or, or everywhere at the same time. He was limited to that body. So even if he healed and delivered and cast demons out of thousands of people, there would still be thousands and millions more. But he knew. He knew that with his life as a ransom for many he knew that he could fix not just the people in and around that area, but that he could fix mankind. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. <laughs> I can't help but think that those, those disciples were going, okay, that's nice. Don't know exactly what it means, but I'll take your word for it. I think it was only in retrospect, in the days and in the weeks following that, that people would, that, that these disciples went back and they, they thought, oh, I, I understand now. When he said a ransom for many, now I get it. Now I understand. But Jesus knew it ahead of time. Again, Jesus had been on his way to Jerusalem and in Chapter 21, he entered the city to great acclaim, right? We've already referred to that today. The day we commemorate today is Palm Sunday. He came into that city and people are waving palm branches and they're throwing their cloaks in front of the donkey that he was riding on. A donkey, by the way, that had never been ridden before, which was in itself a miracle. Can you imagine riding on a donkey that's never been ridden on before and that donkey did not buck him off? I mean, that really is, a, it really is a miracle. And so he's walking, or rather, he's, he's riding on this donkey, and people are going, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <laughs> they're throwing their cloaks in front of him, and the donkey's walking. They're throwing the palm branches, and they're all excited. It's a big deal. The Bible says a huge multitude welcomed him as he entered the city. And, and while much would happen between that event of that Sunday... And the following Friday, what's interesting is that just five days later, from that day, from that day that he arrived in Jerusalem to great acclaim, five days later, he would carry a cross out of that city to be crucified. Think of that. On his way into it, now he went in and out a couple of times during the week, we know that. But on that first time in, he goes into great acclaim, and five days later he comes out carrying a cross. And people, 
yelling and screaming, crucify him. Remarkable. After Jesus was arrested, being held, those who mercilessly beat Jesus, and he was mercilessly beaten, those who beat Jesus, those who who condemned him, those who crucified him, those who nailed him to that cross, most did not have a clue as to who he was. They, they, They thought, many thought, he's just another criminal. Many thought to them, Jesus was either a lunatic or he was a blasphemer or he was an insurrectionist. He, he, he's one of those three things, but few people, few people believed him to be the Messiah. But as he hung there on that cross, as Jesus hung on that cross, and we're talking about the cross today, as Jesus hung on that cross, he was the greatest teacher who ever lived. No one could communicate eternal principles. We can go back in those three years. No one could communicate eternal principles in such understandable ways. Jesus made the character of God comprehensible. He took these huge concepts, the heart and the character of God, and he would communicate them and people would go, wow, I never knew that about God. On that cross hung the greatest teacher Whoever lived. That's why thousands of people in those few years, years listened to him and followed him around lakes and gathered together in groups of five, maybe even 10,000 people to hear his teachings. And yet Jesus did not come just to teach. That was never Jesus' primary objective. He was an incomparable teacher, but he did not come with that primary objective. Those people who placed Jesus on the cross probably did not know that he could work amazing miracles of healing and deliverance and provision and protection. He probably did not, they, they, they probably did not know that. That the one who hung on that cross could with a word, with a touch, with just even a thought, could heal people of anything and everything. They had no idea. The people that put him there, the people that condemned him to go there, they had no idea that Jesus could do all of that. And yet, his miracle-working power was also not his primary objective. It wasn't. I'm not demeaning it. I'm not diminishing it in any way. Thank God for it, and he still does. But that wasn't the main reason why he came. The people who mocked him, one of them hanging on a cross beside him. The people who spit on him. <laughs> the, the, the people who, as he was blindfolded, would haul off and punch him and say, okay, you know everything, tell us who punched you. The people who did that, did they, they, they did not know that he was a leader that was beyond compare. That, 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 that not only did, even at this point, scores of people follow him, but in time, in a short time, that hundreds of people would follow him, and that in time after that, multiple millions of people would follow. They did not know that he was a, a leader beyond compare. Such a leader that 
Again, those who follow Jesus, thousands of them, in times million of them, would also go on to give their lives for him as their followers. That's a leader. I'll tell you, if a leader says, let's go, and people follow, that's a good thing. But if a leader says, let's go, and you might die because you follow me, and they follow, that's a remarkable leader. Centuries later, someone asked Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte was the French um, ruler, uh, general, who conquered much of Western Europe and some of Eastern Europe um, in the early 1800s. Someone asked Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, uh, reflecting on, on, to reflect on, on leadership and, and, and his own accomplishments. And here's what Napoleon said. Napoleon said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force, Napoleon said. And then he went on to say this. Napoleon Bonaparte said this. But Jesus alone founded his empire on love. And to this very day, millions will die for him. I mean, think of that. That one of the, one of the most acknowledged leaders of all time, like him or hate him, he was a leader, acknowledged that Jesus alone could inspire people not with force, but with love. That's a leader. What a leader. And yet Jesus' primary objective in coming to earth was not to, to give leadership lessons. It's, it's not what he did. I'm not saying that's not important, but that's, that's not why he came, was to be a leader and then just create leaders. Rather, Jesus' primary purpose, his reason for coming, his reason for allowing himself to leave heaven and become reduced down, limited to the body of a child. Go through all of life, growing up with all of its challenges and all of its temptations, never giving in once. Tempted in all things, the Bible says, but never giving in once. He did that. He did all of that. His greatest goal is stated here in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying here, my reason for coming was to be the servant, and my reason for coming is to be the ransom, to pay the price for people's freedom. That's why he came. He came to this earth to hang on that cross. He came to this earth to be the one who never sinned who would take my place. Jesus Christ came to this earth, the sinless one, to die for you and for me. He came to this earth. He went through all of that to become the ransom Jesus took our place. Why do we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ? Because it was on that cross that Jesus took my place. It was, it was on that cross that Jesus took your place. You see, you understand, we know from the book of Romans that the, the wages of sin is death. 
the payment, the consequence of our sinful lives. I, I, I loved listening this morning to a brother in, in Connecting Point share his story of what Jesus did in his life. And I was reminded again, God paid the price for that brother. All of the things. He didn't even go. I didn't want him to go into all the stuff that he did. But just what he shared. I said, glory to God, Jesus paid the price for my brother's freedom. Glory to God. He paid the price. That's why we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. In 1941, if you know anything about history, you know that 1941, almost any place, was a hard year. It was particularly hard at an infamous place called Auschwitz. Auschwitz is in modern-day Poland. At that time, it was a part of the greater German conquered empire. Thousands of people in 19, even 1941, with four years still to go in World War II, even by 1941, thousands of people were being held in that, in that horrible concentration camp, again called Auschwitz. One prisoner, one prisoner was a Christian minister named Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Christian minister. He was uh, about my age now. And Maximilian Kolbe had, had been arrested and held there. He was a prisoner because he had helped Jews escape from what came to be known as the Holocaust. He had helped Jews escape, and for that reason, they put him in. He was just one of thousands in that horrible concentration camp. One prisoner, another prisoner, was named Gazofnacek. Now, forgive me if I mangle that as I tell the story. Another prisoner was Gazofnacek, and Gazofnacek, his only so-called crime was that he was a Jew. That's why he was there. One of the rules at Auschwitz at that time, in fact, for the whole time, was that if any person tried to escape, then 10 people would be randomly selected and placed in a cell where they would die of starvation and exposure as a lesson to other prisoners to discourage future escape attempts. So in other words, you, you try to escape or someone tries to, or even if they're successful or unsuccessful, we're going to take 10 of you randomly. We're going to put you in a, in a, in a hole. We're going to put you in a cell until you die. No food, no water, nothing in, nothing out. You will die, all of you. In desperation, someone did try to escape in 1941. So ten names were called, one of whom was the Jewish man, Gazofnacek. When he heard his name, you can understand, if you, if you were to put yourself in that position, you could certainly understand his response when he heard his name called in sudden despair, he, he just cried out. And the people around him heard. He, he cried out and he said, my wife, my children, what will they do? My wife, my children, what will they do? Colby heard him. The Christian minister, Maximilian Colby, heard him. There was a moment of silence. And then Colby, with no hesitation, stepped forward and said, Quote, I would like to take his place. I would like to take his place. The, com the commandant, the commandant of Auschwitz, 
everybody just kind of breathed in like, what's going to happen now? <laughs> They'll probably put 11 men in now. But the commandant surprisingly agreed. So Colby and nine others were forced into one cell. Gavosnachek was asked, was told to go back in line. And Colby and the nine others suffered horribly and all died with Colby ministering to each one in that tight room before they all died. I'm sure leading some to faith in Jesus Christ, though only eternity will tell. Years later, uh, an NBC News correspondent heard about this event that had happened so many years before. And so they tracked down Gazofnicek, now a very old man. Two of his sons had died. His wife did survive. And they found him. They tracked him down. And they asked him to tell his story. And he told his story. And, and then at the end of telling his story with, with tears, even, even, if, even 50 years later, with tears streaming down his cheeks, a mobile camera followed him around to the back of his little white house to a small, to a small little garden area with a m marble monument that he had erected in memory of Maximilian Kolbe. Planted flowers and carefully tended it. It was all very, very clean. On that monument were these words, in memory of Maximilian Kolbe, he died in my place. He died in my place. Gazovnicek said that every day since that day in 1941, he lived with the knowledge, I quote, he said he lived with the knowledge that, quote, someone died for me. How long ago was it, don't, Raise your hands, don't shout it out, but just answer it in your mind. How long ago was it you gave your heart to Jesus Christ? Was it last week, last month, last year, last century? When was it that you gave your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you lived with the knowledge since then that someone died in my place? That someone hung on a tree called Calvary. He hung on a tree that we call a cross. And he died in my place. I don't know what it's like to be in a concentration camp. I, I, I don't know that level of suffering. But I am acutely aware that without the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ, I would die in my sin. And that there would be no hope for me. There could be no hope for me. The best that I could do is to live out my life and, you know, squeeze as much enjoyment as I can before I face a Christless eternity in hell. But someone died for me. Someone died in my place. Someone, long before I was even conceived, long before you were conceived, someone died for us. 
so that all we need do is say, Jesus, I acknowledge what you did. I, I, I recognize what you did. And I realize that without you dying on that cross, then I would be eternally lost. And so I receive you as my Savior. That's all I needed to do. That's all you needed to do. That's all anyone needs to do. And then to access that wonderful forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Brother who shared this morning, connecting point, he, he said, I remember when I gave my life to Jesus, I woke up the next morning and I felt something. I felt better than I'd ever felt in my life and I didn't even want to open up my eyes because I was afraid of what I was going to see. I said, yeah, that's, that's the power of the cross. The question that I asked earlier is, why do we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ? Because it was on the cross that my salvation was purchased. Someone died for you. Someone died for me. Not just to extend our life like Gosofnicek. It's the last time I'm going to mention his name, and I made it through each time. But not just to extend our life, but to give us eternal life. See, that's the best part. Someone didn't die for me just to give me an extra 40 or 50, maybe 60 years. Someone didn't die for me just to give me a couple more months. Someone died for me to give me the rest of eternity with him. Why do we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ? Because it's the only thing that can do that. Only the cross can do that. There's no other teaching that can do it. There's no other philosophy. There's no philosophy that can do that. There's no person that can do that. There's no amount of money that can do that. There's no political system that can do that. Only the cross of Jesus Christ could purchase my salvation, pay the price, pay the ransom so that I could be set free. Glory to God. Why do we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ? Because he forgave us on that cross. Because he, he restores us because of the cross. Because he heals us because of the beating that he took before the cross and because of the cross. Because he delivers us because of the cross. Jesus said, Jesus said, I have come to give my life as a ransom, a payment for freedom for many. His life in exchange for yours and mine. That's why we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. In, 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 the, in the devastation of sin, and every one of us, every one of us here knows how devastating sin can be. And regardless of how devastating sin has been in your life, regardless of the consequences that you are right now going through, I have some great news for you. Regardless of the devastation of sin, Jesus paid the price on the cross to forgive us of that sin. In the distractions of our world, and there are many, I have to tell you, I have to tell you that I, I just spent uh, five nights uh, with my parents, uh, or on my parents' ranch. There, there's no TV there. There's no internet connection. I couldn't hardly get a, a cell phone signal. It was glorious. <laughs> I had a good book to read, and I had my Bible. It was great. 
No distractions. I missed my wife. She would have been distracted, but that would be a nice distraction. But I mean, it, it, was, it was so, in, in all of the distractions of our world, in all of the distractions of our world, we can find hope because of the cross of Jesus Christ. <laughs> in the uncertainties of life, folks, we don't know what the next week holds. We don't know what the next month holds. I'm afraid of what the next year or two or five holds. I don't know. But in the uncertainty of it all, it really doesn't matter because I know that Jesus died for me on the cross and he's got it covered. Glory to God. That's why we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. In the face of pain and loss, with the specter of sickness, what some would characterize as terminal illness, we have the strength to go on because of the cross of Jesus Christ. To know that if and when our life ends, Go to be with him because of the cross of Jesus Christ. To the thousands of lost people around us, and you factor in all of the people that you know, all of the people with whom you interact, really numbers in the thousands, the tens of thousands. You have a message that nothing else in this world can provide. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. Why do we proclaim him? Why do we proclaim? Because in him there is hope. In him there is forgiveness. In him there is salvation. In him there is deliverance. In him there is healing. And it all happened because of a cross. I'll finish with this. Why do we proclaim? My friends, this world will not be changed. I'm not against it. You hanging a cross on your wall. The world will not be changed by you hanging a cross on your wall. I'm not opposed to you wearing a cross around your neck for years. I did. Nothing wrong with it. Something very right with it. But if you think the world is going to be changed by you wearing a cross around your neck, you're wrong. Our world will be changed as we proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. The world around you will be changed as you proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. So don't you hang it on the wall or around your neck and call it good. You proclaim it. Do that, that's fine, but proclaim it as well. More importantly, proclaim it. Why do we do that? Because he is our only hope. He is our only hope. As I mentioned a few moments ago, in that totally redone sanctuary, it's going to be a cross. It's very important that we do that. But proclaim it. Take it outside these walls. Take it, out, take it far outside these walls to those people who are lost in sin, to the people who are despairing, to the people who want to give up, to the people who think there is no hope. Take and proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ to them. They're dying to hear it.
Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for you gathering a bunch of the disciples together, Matthew chapter 20, and telling them your purpose in coming, your reason for being. You made it very clear, and it became clearer in the days ahead to those disciples and to us that what you said was very, very true. It was true when you said it. It became more real in the days following. Thank you, Jesus, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the persons who are here today who at some point in their past were ransomed. I thank you, Lord, that there may also be some here today who have yet not, not yet experienced that ransom, or they don't know if they have been. I pray for them right now. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, is there anyone here that would say, I'm not sure if I'm ransomed or not? I don't know if... I believe what you say, Pastor, that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of mankind, but I just don't know if he's forgiven my sins. If that's you, would you raise your hand just very quickly and and catch my eye, and I want to pray with you. Okay, no one one raised their hand. then, Then with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, how many here, by a showing of your hands, knows someone who has yet to experience that ransom. If you know someone, raise your hand. Of course, every one of us. Lord Jesus, you see these hands. More importantly, you see the people that those hands represent. And I pray, Lord, perhaps even this week, and maybe a time in which people are just a little bit more open, I pray, Lord, that you would use these people to take the incomparable, incomparable message of the cross of Jesus Christ out to them as they proclaim it, not from a pulpit, but across a workbench or a backyard fence or a table at a restaurant or on a sofa standing in a line someplace next to a locker. I don't know, Lord. But I ask that as they proclaim you, as they proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ, their lives will be changed. That I pray, Lord. That's how we're going to reach lost people. It's us taking the cross out of the church and into people's lives. Thank you, Lord, that there will always be a cross here but may we proclaim the cross there. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, please? I want to ask God's blessing on you. As always, these altars, this altar area, rather, is open. You can come and spend some time, additional time with the Lord. I want to thank you for joining us today. And I charge you one more time. Proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. It is our only hope.
He is the only answer. Thank you, Lord, your blessing upon my brothers and my sisters here today. I thank you for their lives, for their families, for all that they do and all that they represent. Oh, Jesus, your blessing upon them this week as they go. I ask your favor upon them. I ask your anointing upon them. Lord Jesus, I ask that you will help us love you more and love other people more in, in demonstrable ways, in, in tangible ways, in, 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 in ways that, that represent the love of our, of our Savior to our world. And I pray, Jesus, that we would share you. We would share the cross. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, prepare us as we gather together. We actually even just pray for these seats. We pray for this place so that one week from today, as people who've been invited, as people who come, one reason or another, more than any, because people bring them, I ask, Lord Jesus, even you'll know the number of people here, and you'll know the hearts of, of each person who will be here. We pray one week ahead of time for a harvest next week. We pray that people will know you, that people will come into the kingdom in just a few days as we remember again and declare your resurrection. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. You're, go with us now in the power of your Holy Spirit, empowering us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross.